Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 120th show. Today's guest is Douglas Cole, author of The Sales MBA, How to Influence Corporate Buyers. I love this book, and it's a must-read for anybody who uh, wants to build a successful uh, sales pipeline and close sales. So, Doug, let's start off with, tell us about your background. Sure. Yeah. Well, I wear three career hats at the moment. So I'm a full-time sales leader at LinkedIn. I lead a team of sales professionals who are trying to expand our commercial footprint with large enterprise clients. So that's my day job, so to speak. Then I'm also a startup advisor. I work with accelerators in Canada, the DMZ and Accelerprise with founders who are trying to start B2B businesses. And then the third, the third hat I wear is a teaching hat. So I teach at a couple of business schools, the Rotman School, the Schulich Executive Education Center, and I teach consulting fundamentals and sales fundamentals in those contexts. So those are the three hats. My background is combination of consulting and sales fundamentally. Uh, that's awesome. And how is the entrepreneurial environment in Toronto? Very active. I mean, Toronto has become certainly the one of the key hubs for entrepreneurial activity in the country. Pretty much uh, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. These are the the main hubs uh, within within Canada at the moment. So a lot of activity. It's been only getting more and more active over the last few years. Excellent. So um, tell us about why did you write this book? Why did I write it? Well, I would say there are two uh, two uh, animating energies behind this book. So the, the first is that I always remember this one comment that I heard many years ago from Stephen Covey, the guy who wrote uh, The Seven Habits. And what he said was, he said that if you're looking to make incremental change, focus on behavior. If you're looking to make quantum change, then focus on the mental paradigm. And I always remember that. And, and it struck me that when I got into the world of sales and I started to pay attention to the way people evolved and then they grew from being a relative novice at sales to an expert at it, what I observed was there's clearly a mindset progression that was happening. There was a change in their paradigm. When they first started out, they were generally preoccupied because they were uncomfortable with the fact that they were speaking to a busy stranger. Because they were uncomfortable about that fact, they just tried to be as likable and as charming as possible. It was that likability was the, the primary emphasis. And then as they got better and they started to consider the other person's point of view and try to marry that to their own commercial agenda, then they graduated to this level of mutuality where they were working towards win-win outcomes. But the ones who really mastered the craft, the ones who became best in, in, the, in the game were the ones who got to a level that I would call plausible objectivity. This objectivity where they were, they were finally able to be perceived as a trusted advisor, uh, even though it was perfectly clear that there was some sort of commercial agenda they had as a seller, they were nonetheless seen as someone who had a legitimate place at the table and could have a conversation as a trusted advisor. So one of the main things that this book is trying to do is, is to define 
what gives you that objectivity? What is, what is the nature of that plausible objectivity that you can bring to a sales conversation? And I break it down into three buckets. So that's the one, uh, as I say, uh, animating energy behind this book. The second, the second thing that drove me to write it was that it always struck me as odd that despite the fact that sales is an incredibly pervasive career, it's one of the most overrepresented job categories, um, both formally and informally in terms of how much you know, selling we all do, uh, it's nonetheless something that is not formally taught. If you look at the roughly 4,000 colleges and universities in the US, fewer than 10% of them have sales programs uh, because it just seems to be generally assumed that this is something you learn on your own. So anyway, I, I wanted to have at least the first, I want to take at least the first step in defining a, 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 a curricular foundation for sales, at least in a B2B sense. And so those I, are the two, two reasons I would say. I, I always wondered why schools, I mean, you wrote in the book that 200 colleges teach sales in the book. And I think that that's probably one of the most critical things that you could learn in a business school. Almost mm -hmm. in, one of the most critical things you can learn just period. Mm -hmm. and yes. Why do you think now that you are in academia, why don't you think that they, and I guess the schools you are teaching at are teaching this, that? It is becoming more common now. I've definitely noticed a shift. I've definitely noticed that there are programs that are being built around sales, but it's still very nascent. You know, it's still in the very earliest stages. We're still going through a transition, I would say. I mean, probably the reasons for it are, number one, let's just be honest. I mean, the sales industry has in general suffered from a kind of social stigma, you know, that you're something to use the word salesy has all kinds of negative connotations to it. And so I think business schools have always been very conscious of their brand and they've been, they've been very, they've always tried to attach themselves to what they perceive to be the, the elite business culture at any given time in banking and consulting and entrepreneurship and so forth. And so they, they wouldn't want to taint that with any negative association. So I think that's maybe one of the, the, the background factors. And I think, I think the other thing is that sales has historically been understood as something that you can mostly learn by doing. And so there's been a reluctance to define what are these you know, curricular foundations or, you know, conceptual foundations. So, so I think um, those are probably the two factors that explain why it hasn't really taken on as a as a formal curriculum in business schools. Of course, at universities, you'd have to have people teaching it that actually have done it, not based yeah. on theory. Um, and and there's a real art to being really good at it, but it, you don't have to necessarily have a sales personality or 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 be driven like that to be good at it. So, why did you go into sales, and what do you like about it? Yeah, well, I think the story of my career, as with so many careers, is a little bit of a mystery. It's a it's a it's a tale of serendipitous discovery. Uh, you know, I think that many of us go through uh, our career, and simply because we 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 happen upon you know some unexpected discovery or insight. So, in my case, what happened was I was in consulting, and I was for a while sure that I was going to continue down that path. But then at a certain point when I looked ahead uh, and I was being given the choice, the very explicit choice of putting on the golden partner hand, handcuffs and committing to that track, I just realized as I looked ahead people who had done that, that it wasn't going to satisfy me. It wasn't going to inspire me. So I made a decision to leave consulting. And one of the things that I determined was that I was going to round out my education, my business education by learning sales, because it struck me that I had never learned it as a consultant. I had never learned it in business school for all the reasons we talked about. And I realized that one of the most important drivers of my career satisfaction 
had been whether had been the growth rate of the company that I was working for. When a company is growing fast, there's just a lot of energy and there are a lot of there are a lot of opportunities within that company. And I realized that the main driver of growth is the sales function. And I knew very little, if anything, about it. And so I wanted to learn about sales as a practitioner and as a leader uh, in order to, as I say, round out my, my business school education. What I discovered and what I discovered, I think, quite unexpectedly is that it was much more interesting and much richer intellectually than I thought it would be. Because sales is fundamentally, if you really boil it down to its basics, it's basically psychology and strategy. It's those two things. It has a lot a lot uh, that it draws from 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 both both those realms. So, I um, I became more interested in it and 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 want to learn and go deeper. And that led to a certain, I guess, obsession or fascination, which ultimately culminated in this book. Um, Mark, are you there? Yep. Um, before we dive in. Uh, before we dive in uh, further to your book, since you work at LinkedIn, what's the best ways to use it to get sales? And what mistakes do people make that hurt their chances of developing relationships? I, I ask this because there's so many people pitching how to use LinkedIn to drive sales. Yeah, well, this is a long, long topic, long conversation, but I would say two principles are probably most important. So one is the way that you position yourself and the other one is the way you interact with other people on the LinkedIn platform. So first of all, with regard to the, the way you position yourself, it's it's long been a common misconception about the LinkedIn platform that it's fundamentally your online resume. I mean, when, when LinkedIn started out, that's pretty much what it was in fact, but over time it has become much more than that. And I think the, the mistake a lot of people make is to view their profile as the sort of chronicle chronological collection of experiences, like an online resume. And I think the most important thing to understand about the way you position yourself is to view it as your brand and your your personal story that you want to tell. So you need to find a way to to position yourself in a way that highlights the things that drive you as, as a person, as a professional. That's the most important thing to get right so that when someone opens your profile, it's it's engaging and it tells a story about who you are and what matters to you. Uh, that's the one, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is that when you engage with people on the LinkedIn platform, I think it requires a little bit more preparation and a little bit more care and customization than people put into it. You, you don't want to be abusing the platform and just spamming everyone in your network for a connection request. You don't want to be, you don't want to be commoditizing the, the connection data that's available on the platform. You want to be paying attention to genuine commonalities and, and genuine common interests uh, as a way to comment on what you share with someone else socially or academically or otherwise uh, as a way to begin conversations and to progress conversations. I think, um, so those are the two biggest mistakes that I see people make with, with regard to LinkedIn. They, they don't really build a personal brand that's sort of interesting to a potential prospect to read and they, they commoditize and they, they sort of cheapen the, the interactions in the platform. The other thing I see is that there are people who aren't really people that set up, you know, profiles there because I see the same picture like three, four times the same uh, person, but under different names. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of work that goes yeah. into managing your whole platform and making sure that things are legitimate. Yeah. So right. yeah, no, there's a. I mean, that used to. Yeah, sorry, it's a big issue a lot, especially with AI technology these days. 
So when, when you mentioned getting to the right mental state, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that to go back to the, the point that we were discussing about this, uh, this paradigm shift to go to use Stephen Covey's uh, formulation, I think that um, the way you show up, one, one of the members of my team, for example, said, said to me once, and it's, it's in the similar vein, and, and this person said, said, you know, when I'm, when I'm feeling good about myself, I perform really well. When I'm not feeling really good about myself, my performance really suffers in sales. And this is related. It's not just a matter of mood. It's a matter of how you perceive yourself and then therefore how you show up to the client. I think that a lot of sales professionals, when they are interacting with clients, they fall into these reactive modes of dealing with those clients because they are in the lower rungs of that mindset progression that I was talking about, the likability and the mutuality. I think when you get to the objectivity level, then what you do is, and you, when you start to see yourself uh, in a different way, then you show up in a much more confident and effective manner. And so what I talk about in the book, I talk about these three different mindsets. What I'm basically arguing is that the people who do this stuff really well in a B2B context, the, that these sellers, they're looking at a B2B sales conversation through these three filters. And so I'm defining these three mindsets as becoming a strategist, becoming a change agent, and becoming a decision architect. And what I mean is that with reference to these three filters, Strategy is all about understanding the external dynamics. It's understanding where this firm competes, how they win. Becoming a change agent is about understanding the organizational dynamics uh, and understanding where is the energy for change coming from, how can I feed that energy? And then the last, the last personal dynamics. How do I figure out what matters to this person? How can I get this individual to care? So those are the three those are the three sales mindsets that I talk about. And I, I try to define some of the, the theoretical foundations and some of the practical applications of that theory in each of those realms. Is there anything different in the genders in terms of approach or style? Well, I would say, I mean, I suppose you could say that in the aggregate, there, there are some differences. Again, we go back to that mindset progression of likability to mutuality to objectivity. You could probably say, I mean, I remember reading, for example, the psychology literature on differences between men and women on those five key temperamental dimensions of openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And apparently, on the level of agreeableness, there is a significant, or at least a statistically significant difference between men and women. So I suppose you could argue that women are maybe more uh, likely to fall prey to that likability trap, the, the desire to be likable because of that difference in agreeability. But I think, I don't think this has much to say about the, 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 the long-term prospects. Uh, I think that certainly within my team and within my organization, most of the top performers are women. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's not as if this holds them back, but perhaps maybe at the early stages, there may be more a slight, slightly greater susceptibility in that sense. Uh, why is it you just said that um, women tend to be the, uh, best performers. Why is that? Well, I think perhaps it is a matter of, of turning that initial liability into a competitive advantage because, you know, the people, as I said before, the people who are really good at sales uh, are generally good at strategy and psychology. And I think women just have a more pronounced interest in understanding other people and more empathic orientation. And so I think if you can, if you can marry that with a, a, a very high level of capability and strategic acuity, then I think you are pretty much a lethal weapon in sales. So I just think that, you know, maybe again, in the aggregate, uh, it, there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, that, that 
maybe that explains why at least most of the top performers that I'm observing right now within my world in LinkedIn, they tend to be women. Has the pandemic changed how sales is done? And is that permanent? It has, it has changed it, and it, uh, it, it certainly it has both changed a lot of things, but it's also highlighted some of the unchangeable aspects of sales, I would say. So um, let me explain what I mean by that. I think what it has changed is, I mean, obviously, it has become a much more digitally driven, digital first type of sales environment. So we, we have become... Now, uh, we, we, we're now defaulting to virtual interactions as opposed to face-to-face -face interactions, both because buyers and sellers agree that, that this, is, this is easier and more convenient and more effective. So there's definitely been a, a sudden shift towards uh, a digital-first, virtual-first sales motion. That's, that's obvious. Uh, I, I think that um, what's less obvious is that this shift has, I would say, highlighted truths that have always been the case for sales, it's actually made them more manifest. So as an example of this, there was a, it was a very interesting report that came out just in the last few weeks. Uh, LinkedIn does an annual study called the, the State of Sales, and they released the report called the, the State of Sales 2022. And it's a global study and looks at a variety of geographies. And they studied a very significant sample size of some 15,000 people, both sellers and buyers. And one of the really interesting findings of the study was that they, they focus in on the top performers within that sales community. In other words, people who are achieving 150% of quota or more. So they looked at those top performers and they asked what it is, what's different between what these top performers are doing in the current reality versus what average performance performers are doing. And there were three insights that stood out to me. Uh, one was that on the level of preparation, these top performers are just much more wholeheartedly embracing different data sources. They're looking at CRM data, they're looking at sales intelligence, they're looking at online data. A variety of digital data sources are part of their preparation to give them a kind of competitive edge when they go into a client conversation. So there's a, a they're much more intensive when it comes to preparation. Second of all, relative to average performers, they're much more personalized. So they're about twice as likely to, to be sending a highly personalized message to a prospect as opposed to you know, a standard message. Uh, they're much more likely to be identifying common connections as opposed to just reaching out cold. All right? So the, the personalization is also significantly different. And then the final difference is on the level of prioritization. Perhaps counterintuitively, these top performers are actually spending less time selling than average performance, about 10% less time spending uh, selling. And the reason for that, it seems, is that these top performers, having done the research, have determined what are their most high priority opportunities. And, and they, they're quite conscious of the trade-off between, between efficiency and effectiveness. They're not just going to play the numbers game. They're going to be very, very surgical and precise about the people they engage. So when I was saying before that I think the, we have changed through the pandemic, but the change has highlighted, uh, I would say, permanent truths about sales. This is what I mean. I, I think something like preparation, personalization, and prioritization, it's not as if those are new concepts. I mean, th those have always been, if you like, the, the core competencies of any salesperson is worth their salt. Um, but those things are now executed in a very different way. And to be doing those in an innovative way today means that you're using a variety of data and digital sources that weren't available in the past. And um, so that's, that's what I would say. How long does a salesperson stay 
with you at LinkedIn, like, you know, or looking at companies in general, how long do they typically stay at an organization? Have you seen any research on that? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that the, the, the tenure, so generally speaking, the, the, the turnover rate in, uh, in, in sales organizations is around 20%. You know, so the whole, whole organization is sort of replaced every five years, roughly speaking. Yeah. Uh, and within, within LinkedIn, that's um, probably roughly accurate, I would say, uh, although it's sort of offset. There's a lot of new joiners as well, uh, which I think accelerate the rate at which the, the team changes because you know, we, we're still growing at a healthy rate of about 30% over year over year. And so there's a, you know, there's a lot of new talent that comes on board, but you know, I feel that the average tenor is probably, uh, probably somewhere on the, on the order of, of four year, four or five years, something like that. And, you know, you guys do a lot of uh, vetting before you bring somebody on. I mean, you're hoping that you're bringing in another star player onto your team. When somebody fails to live up to the expectation, what have you learned from that? Well, I have, uh, for me, when someone fails up to live, to, to, to live up, to me, that's a reason to go back to the evaluation framework and to ask ourselves, what, what did we get wrong in, in, the, in the process here? And I, I view that these, it's not necessarily indication that the evaluation process was broken in some way, but I think that, that the evaluation of people and the assessment or projection of, of talent potential is such a critical question and and anytime you get market feedback in the form of someone who does especially well or especially poorly, you want to you want to go back to your original assessments and conclusions and really try to figure out the degree to which those those were accurate or not. Or what what did you see then that you misinterpreted? Or what what did you miss entirely? So for me, the I, I I'm quite fascinated by this this challenge of, of finding the right people, finding the best possible talent. And making a judgment based on just a few interactions as to whether you know this person is really going to live up to what seems to be his or her potential. So um, those are the those are the main lessons I take away. I, I think that um, you know, hiring is probably one of the most interesting, but also the most complicated uh, challenges. Well, I mean, look at the drafts of all the major sports teams, right? I mean, they're looking at every conceivable data point with someone. Um, both quantitative and qualitative, and more times than not, they get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and and selling is a very context specific craft. You know, there there are people who can be an excellent high performing salesperson in one context, but then you bring them over to a different team, different industry, different company, one of the the bottom performers. So it's it's really there's a lot going on for sure and i think we're we're still trying to sharpen our uh, uh you know sharpen the pixels on this uh what skill sets does someone need and possibly develop to succeed as a sales professional yeah well um i think that uh i mean i said before that that uh, that sales is fundamentally a, a matter of strategy and psychology i think if i added a third skill it would be it would be project management. I think that's one of the one of the um, one of the key competencies that I've come to see over the years. Is that because when 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 a buyer buys a product or a service from a from an organization, um, 
you are not just buying the you're you're not just buying the the product or the service. You're also buying the salesperson in a way. And with many products and services, particularly with software solutions or with, 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 where you have a value proposition that is predicated on a long-term relationship, you know, with in those kinds of situations, the the, the performance of the salesperson, the degree to which that person is showing mastery of all the variables and is able to bring different people together and to advance the ball and to keep the energy going and momentum building. That's a skill that I'm just using shorthand project management. I'm using the term project management as a shorthand for that skill that buyer looks for. It's not just evidence that this seller understands my organization, not just evidence that this, this person understands me, uh, but also this person is really capable in terms of uh, delivering on the, the, the product and the service promise that, that I'm anticipating. So um, I think those are, the, those are the critical skills that buyers tend to look for when they evaluate a salesperson and they make a, they make a decision about whether to buy. Are there different skills, approaches, and mindsets differ on what you sell and the price tag? You know, like, you know, if you're selling... Um, you know, a laptop computer for $500, is it much different than if you're selling a, you know, $150,000 computer system? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that uh, you can basically put sales on a continuum where you, you go from, uh, from one extreme of a very transactional sale to one that's a very strategic sale, you go from one that doesn't rely on that the, the, a sales cycle that is not relationship driven to one that is highly relationship driven. I think that if you're, if you, if you, the further you go towards uh, a high degree of relationship driven sale and a high degree of strategic partnership between the client organization and the sales organization, the more and more you're talking about these elements that I'm describing in the book, the, the becoming a strategist, becoming a change agent, becoming a decision architect, you know, the more commoditized and you know, the more you shrink down the scope of that of that sales assessment, then you know the more it becomes just a matter of just providing raw information to uh, to get to get to a decision. So I think that's probably the most obvious difference. Since sales are global and really global now, how do you prepare yourself for different cultures? How do you prepare yourself and your team to deal with all? And you guys are dealing with two hundred and eleven countries, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so. On this, this is a very fascinating topic. Uh, I will say that um, I don't consider myself to be an expert on these cross-cultural considerations. I'm quite interested in them. And I remember actually there's an excellent book on this topic. You sound like a reader and you've probably, you've probably read it. Uh, business operates. When you, when you think about business happening in a cross-cultural sense, there are these different scales uh, at, on which the conversation is taking place. So you have you have a, a communicating scale, you have a, an evaluating scale, you have a persuading scale, a deciding scale, whatever. And so she talks about high context cultures and low context cultures. For instance, you know the the, unit, the United States is a low context culture, meaning that it it requires very direct and explicit communication within within business. Whereas com- countries like Japan, for example, are high context cultures, and those cultures rely on much more indirect and implicit means of communication. So I can imagine that that would have clearly some implications on, on the way that you you sell. If you were a, a, a high context culture like Japan, would be one in which 
they would uh, they would have these these uh, these linguistic intensive or, or they they would downplay the linguistic labels. You know, we would say something like, you know, this is totally unacceptable, or this is you know completely. Uh, completely lacking in, in foresight or something like that. We would use these more intensive descriptions, whereas they would say something like, well, it's maybe it's a little bit off, you know, or it's, it's slightly less than ideal. And so if you were a salesperson and you were presenting your point of view and challenging the client, that would have some really practical implications in terms of how you would define the problem to, uh, to a group of stakeholders in, in those, those different companies. Uh, so that would be my just initial take on on how cross-cultural considerations would would be relevant in a sales context but as i say that's probably the the someone like aaron mayer is much more the expert she's worth she's worth reading uh, i like the example of the difference between chefs and cooks in your book in relation to sales can you explain that yeah this is one of the critical premises of, of the book so uh, i think what i'm what i'm suggesting is that there is the book is an attempt to define first principles of sales. It's an attempt to, to define these building blocks of, of knowledge. And the um, what I mean by that, in order to explain that concept, I, I'm differentiating between cooks and chefs. You know, a, a chef is somebody who follows a recipe, who does what someone else has already done, and just sort of like almost like paint by numbers goes through that sequence. A chef, on the other hand, it has a, an understanding of how flavors combine. Uh, that chef can be working with any given ingredients that happen to be available and can usually generate something that tastes good. So both of them can create a meal that is a delicious meal, but only one of them understands why the meal tastes good. And so what I'm saying with respect to first principles is that in a sales sense, what I'm trying to ask, what are these equivalent? What is the equivalent of these raw ingredients? What are the first principles of sales? That, um, that underlies success, regardless of the company, the industry, the role you're talking about. And that's the reason why I'm framing becoming a strategist, becoming a change agent, and becoming a decision architect you know, as these, these, uh, these foundations. Uh, you write for the need of salespeople, and you've talked about this throughout this interview, to think strategically when talking to a customer. What's your definition of strategy, and how do you do that authentically, especially understanding, as you write, about how the client competes and wins. Yeah, well, so strategy is one of these areas that, strategy is a term that is very much overused, I would say, in business life. You know, we very often will encounter situations where someone says, what do you think of this, such and such a strategy? And the word strategy is basically used to try to lend some seriousness or gravitas to an otherwise ordinary business initiative. And so people have, I think, diluted the meaning of the term strategy over the years. And so what I'm trying to do is recover the utility of this term. And what I mean by strategy, I've looked at all the literature and there's a whole bunch that uh, offers competing definitions, but basically I'm boiling it down to two questions, which are where do you compete and how do you win? Those are the two most fundamental questions of strategy. Um, because for instance, if you understand where a company competes, what that means is that you understand the choices and the trade-offs that that company has made. You understand that they have decided to focus on this particular buyer and this particular market. And that's and they have, by implication, decided to exclude a vast amount of other potential markets or other potential buyers. So by knowing where they compete, the answer to that first question, you have a sense of their strategic focus as an organization. The other question, how will they win? requires you to understand what are the relative strengths and weaknesses of that company. 
and requires you to understand how they're differentiated from the alternatives that are available in the marketplace. So when I'm talking about selling strategically, uh, what I'm really talking about in some sense is understanding the customer of your customer. You know, a lot of people, when they talk about empathy in sales, uh, they're really talking about empathy for the buyer. But strategically speaking, empathy is really about understanding who is the target buyer for that client's business. And when you think about the perspective of that buyer, when you think about the way that person is evaluating your client's business, what is it that's informing that decision? What is it that uh, that, that causes them to, to, to buy from your client or not? And so a strategic orientation is one that takes this approach. This is asking those two key questions and framing your value proposition in a way that's rooted in what it takes, where that company is competing and what it takes for that company to win. You know, it's funny, every great coach, everybody who's, you mentioned uh, comedians in this book and lots of other successful people, all of it revolves around great preparation uh, for approaching the customer. I mean, in Jerry Seinfeld's case, you mentioned uh, him in the book, you know, the customer being the audience out there. So it seems like a lot of preparation. We have a question from the audience. Can you provide a real life example of preparation using a variety of digital sources? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that I do in at the end of the first section, in fact, it's a it's a trope throughout the book, is that I will close I close each of these sections by telling an illustrative story of someone who brings these principles to life. So at the end of the becoming a strategist section, I use the example of this top rep that I interviewed, uh, this individual who closed a, a spectacularly successful sale, and I tell the story of how this happened. And here's how it happens. This person came into her role and she had up until this time been a pretty good performer, but not a top performer. And a lot of the reason was that she had held herself back. She had this mindset constraint of being largely about win-win outcomes. But when she took on this new role, she was determined to do it very, very differently. She was determined to put in much more preparation and to prioritize much more ruthlessly uh, so that she could achieve the highest level of success. And so what happened was she had this client, which was a large multinational firm that a combination of technology and consulting. And she realized that if she, if she needed to have any credibility with them, she needed to approach them strategically. So for preparation, for digital preparation, she spent, first of all, some time looking at the annual reports and listening to investor calls that, that had a bunch of, that involved a bunch of questions being asked of the leadership team at this company. And in one of these calls, the, the CFO was asked, or the executive team anyway, was asked, why do people buy from you? And this person listed off three reasons. And one of those reasons was uh, that their, this company positioned their consultants as, as being trusted advisors. Now, this seller, her solution was a content management solution. And so the minute she heard that, she thought to herself, okay, now wait a minute. <clears throat> if, if one of the C-suite in this, if some member of the C-suite in this firm is saying that people buy from them because of that particular competitive advantage, being trusted advisors, and I'm selling a solution, which is a content management uh, solution, there's a connection there potentially. And, there, and there's, a, there's a hypothesis that I can test. And so what she did was she went to speak to a whole bunch of sales or, or sorry, frontline consultants within the firm. She, she spoke to them and she asked them, she said, you know, to what degree do you feel you're able to show up as a trusted advisor, because you have the knowledge assets that you believe you need 
in order to credentialize yourselves with potential new clients or in order to add value on live engagements. And she, she went on this almost like a journalistic expedition where she, she spoke to a bunch of individuals and she determined over time that this was clearly lacking, that many of these people on the front line did not feel that they had what they needed in order to show up as trusted advisors. And so what she did was she, 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 she did further preparation by listening to podcast interviews and by you know, reading, reading exchanges between members of the leadership team and the press. And so she, she put together a, a detailed point of view, which ultimately was distilled into a simple story that she, she sent out to a variety of key leaders. And the story was basically, I can see you're trying to accomplish this in the market. You're, I can see that one of your competitive advantages as you see it is the fact that you are you consider yourselves to be trusted advisors. I've now spoken to this number of people and I have these testimonials to, to show that in fact, there's a disconnect between what you're saying and how people actually feel. I have further evidence from other third-party sort of sources that even Wall Street analysts agree that this is perhaps, perhaps a weaker area than you perceive. What we have is a solution that addresses this particular problem. We've done so with a number of other people in this space. Here's a couple of examples. Could we set up some time to talk? That was the pitch that got her a meeting immediately with one of the top marketing executives in the company. That's the meeting that, that initiated a whole series of follow-on meetings, which ultimately culminated in the largest sale that she'd had in her career. And in fact, the largest sale that had happened at that firm. So that's an example of a bunch of things we've been talking about. So it, it's an example of her viewing herself fundamentally differently as a strategist. It's a matter of her putting in a certain kind of preparation, which was rooted in those key questions, those two key questions of you know, where do they compete and how do they win? And it was a matter of her taking that insight, that, that kernel of insight to some senior stakeholders in the company and immediately getting their attention and then using that to build momentum towards a, a pretty mammoth sale. So I hope that answers the question. I actually thought that was a great answer. And for this reason, it made me think that every one of the star salespeople that you're developing and go through your system really think like CEOs. You know, they don't think like what people think of as traditional salespeople because they're thinking at the 50,000 foot level themselves. You know, they're seeing how all the parts work for them. Does that sound like a fair assessment? I think so. Yeah, I, I think it is, you know, and, and there's something interesting about the psychology of people who are top performers in sales. One of the other, I would say, temperamental, the distinctive temperamental features of top performing salespeople is that they tend to be highly autonomous individuals, a little bit disagreeable in some ways, actually, uh, in the sense that they are, they're kind of keen to work things out for themselves and, and to do it their own way. And, and what I think what that means is that they, they're able to sort of view this client challenge as something that they view almost a, as a personal challenge themselves and come up with, with a contrarian point of view that is of interest to someone at the senior leadership level. Who's, who tend, they tend to be drawn to that kind of perspective, that sort of, uh, that sort of contrarian challenge. So maybe there's a little bit of that that sort of ties into what you're saying. Uh, another question from the audience, Doug, uh, LinkedIn offers terrific tools to research prospects in order to develop a personalized sales approach. Zoom info is another good source of information. Can you re recommend any others? Um, gosh, there's so many. I, I think that um, I, I think that the 
in some ways, the traditional, if we're talking about social intelligence, we're talking about understanding individuals. I still think that LinkedIn, that's where LinkedIn clearly has the edge because of just the depth of the, of the network. I mean, we're talking about 850 million people globally, more than 50 million companies, you know, the more than two new members per second joining the platform. So in terms of the density of social intelligence, I would say that, you know, LinkedIn is still very much the, the main player. The, um, it, I think that it's important to have a breadth of sources that, that, that encompass not just personal intelligence, but also company intelligence. So all the annual reports, all the, in, the investor calls. I think that the, uh, I think the, the prominence now of this sort of medium of podcast interviews, I think that's in, increasingly important as well. There, there have been many stories that, that reps have told me about looking for some of the, the top leaders in the organization, looking for podcast appearances of those individuals and sort of understanding those people better through their appearances on these podcasts. So I think that YouTube and the whole podcast universe is, is now probably one of the most interesting angles to understand people better if we're, if we're just focusing on the, the people angle and, and bringing some you know, more personalized approach to the way you, you sell. I, I think that, that that whole podcast and YouTube universe is offering much greater value than, than ever before. And so it's probably one of the new frontiers in that sense. Um. Somebody asked, what is uh, Zoom Info? And it's a, a database that has all types of companies of all sizes uh, that you can um, look at. And usually they even have email addresses and phone numbers and so forth. So back right. to the questions about your book, how much research do you do for the customer's business before you meet them? And, and when you sit down for the first time, how do you actually start the meeting? Um. Well, I think um, that answer to that question is highly dependent on the degree of strategic importance of that client and the degree of interaction that has happened before that the initial meeting. So, uh, so if you're talking about, I think every salesperson has to go through a process of radical prioritization and deciding what are the critical few opportunities within one's territory and what are the scalable many? So, you know, that's one of the first and most critical determinations that you, you need to do as a sales professional. Once you have determined who those um, critical few clients are, I think that uh, the amount of preparation is, again, uh, as much as needs to happen for you to come in with a strong hypothesis on what it would take this company to win, for this company to win, where is the energy for change coming from within that organization, and what are some of the key concerns of the people that you're going to be meeting with? So in other words, those three filters always apply. I'm looking at external dynamics, I'm looking at organizational dynamics, and I'm looking at interpersonal dynamics. And when I come into a conversation, I want to have at least a hypothesis um, with respect to each one of those dimensions in order to be able to see through each of those filters simultaneously. I think that, the, the in my experience, the best way to structure a, uh, a first call is, is pretty much along three in three categories. Is saying, first of all, I want to understand your business. That's the external dimension. Second of all, I'd like to understand your priorities. That's the organizational dimension. And three, I'd like to, I'd like to talk about our partnership. So you, you, you root two thirds of the conversation in their reality and you reserve the last third for your, your own personal interest. And you make the first two components 
much more interesting and dynamic for them by having a hypothesis instead of just asking a bunch of open questions which reveal that you haven't done any work and you want them to do the work for you, you show what you've done and you, you, you make it an actual conversation. So I think that that's my general approach is, is, to, is, to, is to do enough research to give yourself a hypothesis in those three areas and then to structure the conversation with two thirds emphasis on their reality before you talk about how to work together. Yeah, I, I, and that's how you become the trusted advisors by doing all that work uh, in advance so they don't have to act as if they're starting from scratch with you that you hadn't even, like me reading your book, you know, and or asking yeah. questions, just general yeah. questions about the book. Um, yeah. You write about preparing a strategy. What's your pre, pre and game day preparation when you're meeting a prospect for the first time? Is it like, do you spend like five hours doing this? I mean, What's this look like? Well, so I, when I'm coaching my team right now for their preparation, I uh, I think that the I think there's it's sort of it's sort of a power law distribution is what I is the way I generally describe it. And what I mean by that is you for those critical few opportunities for those disproportionately significant clients. Those are the ones that are going to require extraordinary levels of preparation where you might put in several hours before a meeting uh, with with that client. The ones that do not classify as such are the ones where you can you can you can not be quite as worried about how much time you put in. It's hard to give a definite answer. I've 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 uh, I've seen preparation periods of up to you know, 10, 20 hours for, for initial conversation, just depending on the, the level of, of significance of that client. But I think that um, you, it, what justifies this is, uh, is that upfront assessment as a sales professional. This is my territory. This is the total size of prize across my territory. For me to maximize my, my total attainment uh, over the course of this fiscal year, I need to be successful with whatever it is, these two accounts. That means when I go to my first meeting with that account, I'm going to spare no effort in, in terms of what it takes for me to understand the external organizational and interpersonal dimension so that I really show up as someone who has credibility here. You, you write and you've been talking about uh, the concept of being a change agent. How do you do that internally and with clients without offending people? I mean, I think there's always that concern that uh, you're, you're pushing people kind of in a direction that maybe they didn't want you to push them into or that they're looking at, at it as you know, you're putting your agenda first. So how, how do you do that without offending people? Well, I, I think that this gets to the heart of what makes change such a fascinating challenge for a sales professional. Every sales professional is in some sense a change agent. You are trying to move the organization further along some type of, some type of change journey. And I think that one of the misconceptions about change is that it's this physics challenge of trying to push someone who is who is resisting your efforts. And uh, when in fact, change is sort of closer to chemistry. What you're trying to do is, is bring about some form of catalysis. You're, you're trying to take an existing energy source and you're trying to feed it so that there are these knock-on effects. Uh, so change, when you talk about potentially offending someone, I fully understand why you answer the, why you ask the question. I think that change and a change agent is most effective when you're not working against someone, but you're actually trying to work with a pre-existing energy source, which is why I, I talk about these two key questions for the change agent being, where is the energy coming from and how can I feed it? So, I mean, practically speaking, again, 
I can tell the example of one of the top performers that I interviewed for the book who took a program, it was a, an existing software program that was only applied to a small team within that company. And she wanted to significantly expand that program and make it a company-wide program. And their, their initial perspective was, well, uh, we're, uh, we have a very clear philosophy here, which is we're, we're, this is an opt-in program. This is a hand-raiser program. If people want it, they have it. If, if they don't want it, then we're not going to expand the program. So that was their pushback on, on, what she, on what she was trying to persuade them to do initially. And so rather than just trying to disagree with that and say, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, this really should be an all-in program. And here are the reasons why it should be an all-in program. Rather than taking that sort of approach, which may, you know, to, yours, to use your words, may have offended someone, uh, she and instead she viewed this as a as a challenge that required her to change the situation and and to work with a pre-existing energy source in order to build momentum for that program. So the very first thing she did was she found out what is the dominant theme in this company right now, and she realized that there was this there was this core concept that was being talked about at all the all hands meetings and in all the the frontline manager meetings, and she she found a way to attach the objectives of her program to support that, that overarching corporate initiative. That was the first thing she did. She, she, she linked it to the things that people were already personally interested and motivated to pay attention to. And then what she did was on a social level, she tried to find the, the known innovators and connectors within that organization. She, she asked around and she, 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 she figured out who the main influences were. And she spoke to those individuals about doing some pilots to test out her software solution with those teams. They then ran it for a while and became sort of guiding lights or standards for other teams to follow. And then the last thing she did from a structural perspective was that she found a way to sort of embed herself as a kind of surrogate presence within uh, the, the business processes of these teams. She got into the CRM system through through a a, a, um, a, a widget. Uh, she uh, uh, she got into the training system through. Uh, through, through videos that were made available to uh, to employees who were going to train training programs on a regular basis, and so she she then she designed the situation such that the momentum for this program started to build on an existing energy source. And when it got to this point, several months later, where they had to make a decision at renewal, it was a straightforward no brainer for them to flip from this this opt in to this all in approach. And so that was a, an example of how she very explicitly and very intentionally didn't want to offend anyone. And she just wanted to work with that pre-existing energy source in order to change the, the context. Uh, in the book, you mentioned Dan Pink's book, and he's terrific, um, To Sell as Human, and how he recommends understanding relationships within an organization to determine who are the influencers are. What's your process for doing that? Because that's really critical. Yeah. Yeah, I just have a really simple suggestion on that. And, and that is that, when you are trying to find these influencers, you're trying to determine these people who have you know, outsized influence within that organization, you just want to speak to a number of teams and you want to ask them, who are the most connected and respected members of this organization? Who are the ones that people look to as, as social cues before taking on new initiatives or maybe resisting new, new initiatives? And what you find is when you, when you speak to a number of teams and you ask that same question, that over time, you're gonna notice that certain names keep popping up on that list. And when you see those names repeatedly come up, then you start to realize you know, who these influencers are. There's a, in the book, I, I talk about a distinction between 
those people who are relevant innovators versus those who are not. And, and there's a lot of interesting research on this where they talk about how in some contexts, you can have people who are known innovators, they're known mavericks and people who are very, very unconventional in the way they approach, but they don't actually inspire others. They're just sort of perceived as being slightly weird and eccentric. What you want is that combination of someone who is an innovator, but also someone who is deeply connected socially and also an influencer. So you need to figure out who those individuals are. And, and then that becomes where you can start to build your coalition. You gave an example of writing out a fake email. I've never done this, but I thought this was a good idea. Writing out a fake email from a client about why they didn't need what you were selling. I was wondering that uh, I was wondering that is a good exercise to adopt for every prospect to get a sense of what you need to say to overcome objections, or just you are wasting uh, time with the or or deciding whether you're wasting time with a prospect. You know, like maybe this isn't the right. Uh, prospect for you. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, that I remember that exercise very well. So the the person who initially suggested that was Seth Godin, the the marketing genius, and I took a, a course called the Alt MBA. Uh, Alt MBA, and in that course, what he challenges you to do is to write this email from the perspective of a customer who is saying no to your product or service, but with very an important nuance here. He's saying. I don't want you to do this just so you can identify objections so that you can figure out how to over overcome those objections. He's asking you to write this perspective as if that perspective from the customer is the noble, heroic perspective. That person is in the right. You are not in the right. You want to just try to play up their virtue as much as you possibly can. It's, it's a really tough exercise in empathy to do this. But yeah, that exercise of trying to think through the eyes of your customer in a way that paints that person as the hero not just as someone who's providing a, a, a bunch of potential objections that you can then respond to, but really as the hero. That forces you to understand their emotional reality in a way that sets up a much deeper conversation. You know, sales, again, to come back to our, one of our earlier themes in this, in this conversation, it comes down to strategy and psychology and to understand, to be, to be able to participate in the emotional reality of your client is a very subtle and, and deep exercise. And it's and it's one that a lot of salespeople kind of skip over because it's so hard to do. Um, but um, but that's, that's what that exercise is about. And it, it is a very powerful way to reframe the opposition you're up against. Uh, after reading this book, I said, I, I think I need uh, your coaching. I developed a common app called Funding Organizer and it's for bank loans. It's for... Um, bank loan officers to use to collect information. So instead of taking four to eight weeks, it only takes one to three business days, but I haven't been able to sell it. And I have lots of good excuses like you wrote about people in the book. How do I turn that around? Or is there a chance my product just isn't needed? You know, because sometimes you might have a product that people just don't want it. Yeah, well, Clearly, it's a little bit difficult to answer that question without going into the specifics, but I would say, I mean, I guess this is in the spirit of the book, which, as we've been talking about, is a right. book about first principles. And if I were to look at any entrepreneurial challenge from a first principles perspective, uh, it, it seems to me that uh, there are these four questions that every entrepreneur needs to be able to answer with respect to her, her product or service. And I think one of those questions is, what problem do I solve? What problem am I solving? The second question is, who has this problem? The third question is, how do I solve that problem? And the fourth is, how do I do it better than the alternatives? Generally speaking, my experience in speaking to entrepreneurs who are 
experiencing some kind of impasse is that one of these questions is a little bit wobbly. It might be, for instance, that someone has identified where one could add value in an industry, but it's not rooted in what the problem is. Right? Do, do you actually understand the problem? Do you also understand who specifically has this problem in, in, an, in, an, in an actually meaningful way? Uh, because you need to have an, a clear understanding of who your target buyer is, generally speaking, as an entrepreneur in order to get off the ground. You have a very, very specific niche. The third is the problem, how do I solve this problem? Am I solving this in a superficial way or am I solving it in a deeper way? And then how does it compare to alternatives? Generally speaking, there may be some blind spots with respect to how you are positioned relative to alternatives. So from a first principles perspective, I've always found those four questions to be a powerful way to go back to basics with respect to why a business was created and, and what prospects for success it might have. Um, then of course, you know, in addition to all those, there's always the question of timing. There are many fantastic products which in fact do maybe answer those questions, but it just might be the case that the timing is a little bit off. We've, we've seen all kinds of examples of that in business history, of course. The examples utilizing Jerry Seinfeld's career, which I really enjoyed um, because I think he's very clever, how he thought about competitive advantages was interesting. Could you relate how he realized writing was the key to success and, a, and process a salesperson's focus uh, on how to maximize their chances of long-term success? Yeah, well, you know, the, Seinfeld is a great example of, I bring him in the book at the end as a way to, to show how these principles are broadly applicable. You know, I, I, these, are, these are intended for the most part in this book to apply to a sales professional or to someone who's looking to influence. And I just I use the example of Seinfeld to show just how deep these roots are uh, for all the concepts that I'm talking about. And Seinfeld's career is a great example of someone who who's applying these strategic principles and these change agent principles and these the decision architect principles. And so, for instance, he he just made he's he made some really critical decisions about what he needed to focus on, how he needed to simplify his focus, and he determined that the most the most cardinal skill that he needed to work on as a comic was his writing. He figured that if he could really, really go from being sort of an okay writer to a brilliant writer, then that would give him a tremendous competitive advantage as a comic. And so he designed his whole routine, his whole professional routine around improving his writing ability, and set aside roughly three hours a day, where all he could, all he was allowed to do in that time was write. He could not write, but he couldn't do anything. He, he couldn't do anything besides. He couldn't you couldn't succumb to any other distractions. And so I think in a sales context, there's there's some kind of parallel to this. I think salespeople, there are certain activities which are so simple and so foundational. And a lot of people just don't do them because they naturally recoil from the effort and from the pain of doing these things. And so I, I would say those two things are probably my best candidates for them would be, would be probably the prospecting, just putting in on a regular basis, a certain amount of prospecting effort. And the other thing is this preparation angle, just constantly looking to learn more about the external dynamic, the organizational environment, interpersonal. You know, those are those require sweat. And so to, to shrink these tasks down to manageable bite-sized pieces and to commit to them, to, to commit to them in a systematic way, in the way that Seinfeld did, I think that's key to success as a sales professional. So we're only gonna have time, I think, for two more questions. I'm curious, when is the best time to write to prospective customers? I tend to write in the mornings or 
Sundays, especially if, uh, especially the CEOs. My feeling regarding CEOs is that no one's screening at those times. W- what do you recommend? Yeah, I think the, the general principle is outside of business hours and outside of of peak catch up periods. So I think you know early early Wednesday morning or or late late Wednesday night or early on Sunday, late on Sunday. That you know those those are the kinds of hours. There's a great story that I remember Tim Ferriss told many years ago where he, he was working as a sales professional and he, he wasn't doing so well at getting CEO's attention. And so he just made that simple switch of, of calling them after hours and his engagement levels just went up. So I'm sort of doing a hat tip to what I remember hearing, but it's definitely something that I've personally experienced and, and seen others on my team experience too. So here's the last question for you. What are the key changes in the sales industry that your book helps to address? Uh, well, I would say number one is to elevate the sales profession. I think that we talked a little bit earlier about the stigma that has been associated with sales for a while. I want to explain just how rich and intellectually stimulating the the area of sales can be when you think about it through these filters. Uh, so I'm looking to elevate the profession through this book. And, um, and the second thing is I'm, I'm looking to give people a common set of of principles that apply regardless of your job. So I'm, I'm working towards a true sales MBA. In other words, a recognized consensus of what are the underlying foundations of sales success. So those two things I would say. Could you mention your website? Yeah, the website is the salesmba.ca. The book can be bought on Amazon. And if, if any of it lands with you, I would just ask if you could please write a review because that's the most important way to get to other readers. Doug, you were awesome. And you've got a great book. You're a smart guy. And it comes through in the book. So thank you so much uh, for being on. And uh, I hope you'll write another book so we can have you on again. Thank you so much. I will definitely be working toward that. (laughs) Everybody have a great weekend. Hope you all stay cool or at least get into a pool, something good. Uh, Have a safe weekend, everyone. See you all next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.